Welcome to the Joseph Smith Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches, featuring more than a half century's worth of devotionals and forums exploring the prophet's life and teachings. Be sure to check out our other podcasts by searching BYU Speeches wherever you get your podcasts or by visiting speeches.byu.edu slash podcasts. If one felt agitation and nervousness at coming to your school and talking to you, he would have lost it and would have been at peace had he heard this number which you have just listened to. I don't believe that I've ever heard anyone sing that song or deliver it any more beautifully than has been done this morning. I've had a, an intense feeling that I, during the past three or four months, want to talk about the Prophet Joseph Smith. I don't know why that should be, particularly. There are many people who talk about the Prophet. Among your faculty, you have some of the ablest defenders of his doctrine that are in the Church. You're exposed to that every day, I suppose, in your classes. And yet I could not shake the feeling that I also wanted to say something this morning about him. I shall not do it in the ordinary way. I'm not going to talk to you about the doctrines that Prophet Joseph Smith taught. I'd like to talk to you about Joseph Smith as a man, just as a man, a human being. And I warn you in advance that this is not a jointed talk. It's, it will be very badly disjointed. I have not prepared a smooth manuscript. I have some material here from which I'll read occasionally and try to make a at least a smooth flowing affair out of it. But I want you to share a feeling that I have about the Prophet Joseph Smith. Everybody knows that he was a great man. Everybody knows many of his accomplishments in a religious way. But he, like many other men, had feelings, personal feelings. He had a feeling for children. He had a feeling for his family. He had a feeling for his friends. And he had an an exceptional amount of charity for those who were his enemies. He would not judge them. He refused to judge them. Back in the older days, in the days of 1820, the state of New York was covered by a forest the extent of which, the depth of which, is hard to imagine. It went without stopping to the Gulf and to the Arctic Circle. It went west as far as the Great Plains and east as far as the Atlantic Ocean. It was a magnificent forest of hardwood trees, largely interspersed with some pine coniferous trees. And it was almost impenetrable as far as ways of getting places are concerned, except by the waterways which pierced it. By 1820, there were some spots that had been cleared around towns, but to a great extent, the forest was still untouched. 
Joseph Smith's father purchased some land and began to clear it a few miles south of Palomara, New York. And the operation of clearing that land was their main occupation. Of course, they had to plant some of it to get enough money to live. They had to raise food. But largely, it was improving the farm and the muscular effort of felling the trees, some of which had boles five, six feet through. Can't imagine a maple tree with a trunk that thick, can you? Or an oak, but they were. They felled them with hand saws and split them up with axes and wedges. They burned much of the wood, having no market for it. And the process by which they did that engendered in them powerful, strong bodies. They were immense, strong, muscular men. Joseph Smith's father was six feet three, I think, tall and of immense muscular stature, as were his brothers. And Joseph Smith was growing up at that period, being about 14 and a half years of age when he went into that forest because he did not go into a grove. He crossed that fence, the worm fence they had built out of the logs which they had split, and walked up into the timber. Nobody knows quite where he went. Boys, of course, know the woods and they know where to go to find privacy. And he went there into the woods somewhere up onto a neighboring hill because surrounding the farm were neighboring hills no matter which direction he went. And you know what happened there. I'm sure you'll excuse me for a moment that part of speaking and part of Christmas is blowing noses. Well, after he finished with his vision, out of the woods came Joseph Smith, throwing his long, thin, gangling legs across the worm fence, which divided his father's field from the forest. The brooding, darkening forest, long shadowed from the afternoon sun. You must remember he was in that grove quite a long time, or in that forest. These woods, these forest woods, made sacred then and now by this act, this visit, this revelation of God and his exalted Son. And so across the field, threading his way toward home, the cabin home, the frontier cabin home, threading to his way, his lonely way, toward destiny, his destiny. In such, in such a simple way, important work begins. Here in his heart and his soul, the outline of the work he was to do, could he stand true? This question takes a lifetime to complete an answer. Just now he knew that he would speak for God. Just how or where or what he'd say was not made clear on that holy day. Well, he walked across the field and pulled the latch string on the cabin door. You folks must remember that he did not live in the house that's there at this time. It was a rude cabin. 
and stepped across the rude carved puncheon floor and leans exhausted against the mantel shelf. His mother, keen of eye to notice each small change in temper of each one, said, What's the matter, son? Are you ill? And he, with solemn dignity of fourteen years, replies, I'm well enough off. A pause, a long pause, and then the awkward words gush forth. Mother, I can say to you that Presbyterianism is not true. I like to imagine some of the things that happened during that period. There's no written record of them. I suppose everybody has a right to imagine things. I'd like to imagine here with you one instant I think must have happened. Parson Brown tied his horse to the worm fence bordering on the field where Joseph Smith, the father, tall and lean, with iron muscles, swinging axe with clean, untiring strokes, stood felling trees. He spoke. Howdy, Joseph. That's a likely axe you swing. The blade falls true and cuts the notch out clean, as a good axeman should. Well, it's good to see you, Parson. Won't you walk up to the house and set? Incidentally, that word's correct in this fit in this setting. <laughs> Not yet. This will do. I want to talk to you about your boy. Can't you keep him busy so he won't be having time for visions, stirring up the neighborhood? Such goings on are from the devil, and he will come to no good. Visions are no more since John on Patmos closed the door. Parson? Once I thought you knew the way to light and truth. You quoted John and said the revelation is the last, and if any add to it, they're damned. But now I know you're wrong. You ask about my boy, my visionary boy. I don't know what it means and can't pretend to know the end. But one fact I do comprehend, that my boy saw two beings, glorious and bright, who said that yours and every church is wrong is not of God. Now I'll stand behind that boy. He has my backing, my support. And I will say, and he said it was slow, sharp, spoken word, this message comes from God, directly from the Lord. With angry voice, the parson spoke. So, you're deceived as well. I tell you, vision is no more. This comes from hell. Revelation's dead. The father raised his axe. We'll see who's right. And with a blow both fast and true, buried its head into the tree and sent it crashing to the earth. Social error fall, he said. The parson, trembling, angry, got into his chaise and drove away. Past the forest, <clears throat> past the place where Joseph crossed the fence on that spring day. The lingering sacredness about the spot he could not know. He took the whip and venting anger on his horse, vanished up the road in clouds of dust. Another one. <clears throat> a group of country boys sitting on the top rail of a fence making noise.
any noise if loud and raucous satisfied boys. There's loud talk and swearing, cursing among those bolder and older, daring God to smite them, and from experience knowing that he won't. The bravado of youth caring not for truth, anxious to show their manhood by acts which belie manhood. These saw Joseph Smith walking toward them, walking into town on some errand bound, and seeing him began to laugh with snide remark and quick aside. The bolder ones, with twisting quip and flippant lip, asked if his angels were with him that fine day. None left the fence, <clears throat> none dared to try his strength, arm against arm, but like a flock of cawing crows, their thoughts as black as feathers on the bird, they lined the fence. Joseph heard, but walked his stoic way and paid no mind to what they had to say. There were no friends among these noisy youth these thoughtless enemies to light and truth. Joseph Smith was a strong man when he grew to manhood. He said that his brother Alvin was the strongest man he ever saw in his life, and furthermore, that Alvin also was one of the handsomest men that ever lived on earth, not accepting anyone except Father Adam. I suppose he arrived at that viewpoint from the fact that he saw and envisioned many of the ancient patriarchs. But Joseph Smith didn't know his own strength. And my own personal opinion is that he was as strong as his brother Alvin. No man was ever able to throw him in a wrestling match or to match him at the sports of those days, like pulling sticks or thumbs or fingers or any of the things men do to vie with each other for strength. And in his life, because of his great strength and especially his physical makeup, of, which seemed to be perfect, he was able to withstand many things that would have thrown lesser men. <clears throat> Here's another incident that took place in... 1831, as I remember it. John Johnson, father of two large, handsome sons, Luke and Lyman, incidentally, who later became apostles, and his wife, her arm long useless from rheumatic pain, and Ezra Booth and his wife, too, had heard of Joseph Smith, both good and bad report, and thought they ought to visit friends in Kirtland, then call on Joseph Smith and see him for themselves to satisfy their curiosity. And so a team was hitched and driven there, then, finding where he lived, they called on him. Prim and straight, the women sat, their feet placed squarely on the floor, their long, full dresses, bring back that happy day, hiding line and form, with laced half-mittens hiding roughened hands, reposing quietly in each woman's lap, their heads poked bonnet-crowned. They dignified their sex. This was the accepted way for women to appear. The men sat on their chairs with greater ease, cross-legged, dressed in somber black, befitting garb for men of sober mien. All eyes were on the prophet Joseph Smith. Could this youth be a prophet? Some must thus have doubt. This youth, compared to them, of twenty-six, well-built, they thought. No clothes could quite conceal the ripple of the muscles when he moved. A powerful man. John Johnson looked at him with new respect. They talked of many things, of gifts prophetic, of faith and works, of kingdom of the Lord and of the work of God. What would they talk about, these prosperous farmer folk, when speaking with the prophet? And how could they be sure he spoke the truth? They must have had such thoughts. One spoke and wondered if prophetic power was on earth, and if any man had power to heal the sick as Christ had done. And Peter later on, 
Had God in this last day given to any man to heal, say, such a one as Mrs. Johnson here? Her arm had been quite useless many years. No one replied, and conversation veered to other things, as conversation will. There was a pause, and Joseph Smith arose and crossed the room to where the woman sat and took the hand of Mrs. Johnson, and then he spoke. Woman, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I command thee to be whole. Immediately he left the room. There was stunned silence. What impudence flashed through one mind. But Mrs. Johnson spoke and said, The pain is gone. Look, I can raise my arm. And raised it thus for all to see. And praised the Lord for her release from pain. No one described their leaving to return, nor what they thought as jogging slowly home they talked and mulled the things that they had heard. But Mrs. Johnson rode with ease at last. No one could tell her that she hadn't seen a miracle and felt one too, and all could see, if any cared to see, her doing up the family wash next day, rubbing, scrubbing, rinsing, boiling, hanging, arm as good as new. John Johnson and his family joined the church, and Ezra Booth as well, and offered Joseph Smith asylum in his home, rent-free, and boarded him and Emma and the twins as long as they would care to stay. A man raised up to ease the prophet's load and care for him while he performed his work. The prophet Joseph Smith had a great deal of experience with mobs, and I, as a young man, and still do, I guess, have no realization, had no realization of what a mob really is and what it does and how it acts. You folks today now read in the newspapers occasionally of what a mob can do and you become more conscious of these uncontrolled, vicious things. But in that day, of course, mobs were not so common and when you read in the church history about Joseph Smith and a mob, you don't quite visualize it. What is a mob? But men who hate good men found doing good, who seeing goodly deeds or hearing them find within their souls a rising tide of rancor, jealousy, resentment of the good. All this is hate, low-keyed at first. Where is its root, its stem? Why, within the hearts of men, who for their part find hatred in the heart for men who would do good. Then where do they direct their hate, their spleen, but on the Lord's good work? Like vultures, seeing from afar the victim lying helpless on the ground, gather around to croak insulting words and wait the death of one so hapless found. Mobs gather strength from numbers. No man alone would dare to do what ten would try, while fifty, like a hurricane, undirected, surging forward, wrecking all within its path, with dull brute force, forgetting head and heart, surge forward to impel to evil do. This is the way with mobs. At first, men meet to heckle and harass. This failing to intimidate, they talk of tar and feathers for the object of their hate, and riding on a rail, then laugh exaggerated laughs at such a thought. They call on God to damn them if they don't kill him when they meet. Where did the idea come from to kill? They like the thought. It races through their minds faster than forest fires through the forest, tinder dry. They cry aloud, we'll kill, we'll kill, we'll send his whole soul to hell, we will, and seal it with an oath to God and Jesus Christ. The will to kill has now become a flood. 
Not can stop it till it's tasted blood. How did they come to hate? There's not been done to call for hate, yet hate wells in their hearts full-blown, faster grown than mushrooms in the caverns dark, but such are cultivated plants. Hatred blooms without such tender care. From thin air it's there. Flee, Joseph Smith, flee fast from mobs, these men half-crazed with hate. Now is not the time to stand. Far better now to run from this brute strength inspired by the evil one. Destroy you and the work is done. Not yet. Each time you meet, they'll hear and gather vulture-like. So now meet and retreat, Joseph. Meet and retreat. Simon's writer, erstwhile member of the church, joining, joining having sought and found a sign, but taking quick offense because the prophet spelled his name with I instead of Y, claiming that a Holy Ghost which could not prompt the spelling of his name correctly was no Holy Ghost, rejoined his former church, and picking up the cloak of ministry, now led a mob of men across the frozen earth toward Joseph's house. <clears throat> the wild March sky, well darkened by the night, a gloomy night, the men well fortified with liquor to bolster up their will to hate and kill. They rush the door, and eight spread-eagle him and hold him high in air and carry him out into the night. He struggles to escape and fought, fails one strong one with a mighty kick before he is subdued. Stop struggling or we'll kill you now, they threaten him. They lay him on the frozen earth, holding him there by weight of numbers. Simons, ain't you going to kill him now, says one. Simons, where's the tar bucket? Then, tearing off his drawers and shirt, one falls on him and scratches him from head to foot until blood flows. I'll show you how the Holy Ghost falls on, folks, he gloats. They cover him with tar, black, nasty, slimy tar. Here in the dark and cold, they leave him lying on the ground and run away. Painfully, he staggers to his feet and sees a light across the field, the beacon light, and comes once more to Johnson's house. Emma sees him standing in the door and faints, and all night they scrape the tar and wash his wounds. Then dawns the Sabbath day, and Joseph, gaining strength, preaches at the service held that day. A group of mobbers came to hear his word and marvel at the strength of this, the prophet of the Lord. There were other mobs, of course, and Joseph Smith wasn't always present. I'd like to tell you about one. The muddy river flows, rolls relentless on and on, a never-ceasing bar to flight. Will daybreak never come? The air is cold. A driftwood fire casts fitful shadows on the bluff. A late November moon hangs on the shelf of night. The whimpering children huddle against their mother's skirts who draw them close with thin, protecting arms beneath their cloaks and give them warmth as best they can. The frosty stars shed forth but little light. Here in this misery the driven saints made camp with what they brought in hurried flight from Jackson County mobs. This night will long remembered be a witness of the mobbers' infamy. You may see that in your memories as you remember they were driven out of Jackson County. The prophet, of course, was in Kirtland. 
There were other things about the prophet you ought to know about his wife. I'd like to share with you one of them, two of them, in fact. Walk with quiet step into the room. This was uh, June the 15th, 1828. Walk with quiet step into the room, the darkened room. Emma Smith lies quiet on the bed. Her swelling breasts find no relief, no tiny head to nestle or to nuzzle. In the next room, her firstborn son lies dead, his life but hours old, the warming spirit gone, the body cold. And then on April 30th, 1831, once more with solemn tread, carried to the cemetery, not one newborn child, but two. Lay them in the quiet earth, this new turn quiet earth, and Emma Smith lies quiet on the bed, her swelling breasts find no relief, no tiny head, while Joseph Smith holds funeral for the dead. And there on that same day another grave, a mother fair, that two might enter earth, she died while giving birth. John Murdoch's wife. The children live. Then Joseph said to John, Perhaps if Emma took your twins, it would assuage her, bring her peace, and ease the sorrow in her heart. And John replied, They'll die without a mother. Let Emma have them. I'd rather that she would than someone else. Emma Smith lies quiet on the bed. Her swelling breast relieved at last. The mewling sounds bring comfort and release and peace. After the Curlin Temple dedication, a time of great happiness and joy to the saints, he had a little time of relaxation. The happy week has passed, and Joseph Smith once more does other things. He brings companionship to Emma, dearly loved, and fondles children, swings them high above his head and catches them with gleeful laugh. He sits at table with a group of friends and finds new strength that loyalty and love they bring to him. His love is fed by them, as love must always be, for love to long survive is kept alive by love's affinity. And then right after that, the mobs and the apostates began to gain strength and began to threaten him. One night on January the 10th, I think it was, in 1838, a knock came to his door, and quickly he had to ride. I don't know how many of you young folks ever had the necessity of riding a horse through a cold January night for 12 hours. It's no easy thing. Ride, Joseph Smith, ride through the cold night. The frosty stars give little light. The cold, grown worse, settles in steamy clouds around the horse. Gallop and canter, walk and trot. This is not the time for talk to Sidney Rigdon, riding too. Bring the great coat up around your ears. Flail your arms across your chest. Be sure you stomp your feet in stirrups. Wiggle slowly freezing toes buried in the depth of stiffened boots. Put warming glove to icy nose. Spare the horses. Ease them over hill, down dale. When morning comes, you must be far away without fail. 
The men who want your blood will wait till warming sun to seek you out, and you must be far away when comes the day. The next day, Emma and Mrs. Rigdon, of course, started out in wagons to meet their husbands and met them 60 or 70 miles away. A little town, I can't remember its name. Norton, I guess it is. And I thought to myself, that was some ride, 60 miles in one night in the middle of the winter. No weak man could have done that. And no weak horse either, as far as that goes. And they started to cross country in the winter, and those two wagons joined by others for far west, 1,200 miles away. In this our modern day, we stand head bared with solemn pride. When our land was conquered by the pioneers, those sturdy souls of faith who braved the plains to reach these sheltered vales, their fears, their doubts, by faith they overcame. The healthy, wealthy, sick, the halt, the lame, all shared the same brave journey to this land. Their faith in God brought courage to each soul. They came 1,200 weary, dusty miles to win their goal. 1,200 weary, dusty miles in summer's heat. 1,200 weary, frozen miles in cold and sleet. Which would you choose, you modern pioneers, if you could choose? We cannot choose. We cannot reverse time, but we can bear our heads, for Brigham led the pioneers 1,200 miles to this Dead Sea, and Joseph Smith led Brigham Young 1,200 miles into his destiny. The men drove teams and conquered hazards on that winter's march. The women tried to keep the children warm and safe, protected them from harm. These women feared as later women feared to cross the plains, but conquered fear. Rise up with hat in hand to honor Emma Smith, and those who with her too were brave and true. And then a month or so after she reached far west, their son was born. She carried that child all the way across on that particular march. And I can imagine she sang something like this to the child. Lullaby, baby. Hush, you're crying. Mother is near you. Trying, trying to comfort your tears. Father will come when the day is dawning when marbles are gone. So hush, my baby. Sleep till the dawn. Lay your head on mother's breast. Sleep and rest. Rest, rest. Sleep and rest. There isn't time to tell of other deeds requiring rare courage and rare strength. Of the Far West treachery, the Danite movement, the apostasy of men like Oliver Cowdery and David Whitmer and Thomas B. Marsh and Orson Hyde of the Munson Liberty Jail, of the Nauvoo period of the death of a brave man and his brave brother. Someday someone will write an epic worthy of the epic life of this man, whom we revere as prophet, seer, and revelator. Until that day, may we do our best to try to bring about the work he so valiantly started. In the name of Christ, amen. You've been listening to the Joseph Smith Podcast, presented by BYU Speeches. Please check out our other podcasts of recent speeches, classic speeches, and BYU Speeches compilations on love and marriage, overcoming adversity, by study and by faith. Come follow me. 
and Jesus Christ, our Savior and Redeemer. Go to speeches.byu.edu and click on Podcasts for more information. You can also find all BYU Speeches podcasts at your preferred podcast provider.